All right. Hey, everyone. Bill Brower with FMBA Nation. And in this episode, I get to talk with Chief State Counsel Craig Gumpel and Tom Cushane of Cushane Law Firm about one of the hottest topics right now in the public sector industry, and that is the legalization of recreational marijuana. Uh, we have a really in-depth conversation about the issue, try to address some specific things regarding labor and how this issue affects our members of the FMBA. Stick through the entire episode. Tom and Craig are gonna give you some valuable, insightful feedback on the issue. And as always, thank you for listening to FMBA Nation. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Bill Brower with FMBA Nation coming to you live from the SurfPro studios here in Rahway, New Jersey. I've got the honor and privilege to be joined by none other than our chief state counsel, Craig Gumpel, and Tom Cushane, who is a legal expert and a lawyer for Cushane Law. Yeah. And um, I do statewide practice uh, for police and firefighters all over the state. Gotcha. Gotcha. Tom and Craig, thank you for joining me uh, today. We're going to be talking about a topic that is a hot topic right now. There's a lot of buzz going around about um, the legalization of marijuana, but we're going to focus uh, specifically on how this uh, affects public safety personnel. What does this newly passed uh, marijuana law mean for our New Jersey public safety workers? Well, I think first to be clear that the new law is for recreation marijuana. There already is in existence um, a law regarding medicinal medicinal marijuana and its use, and that's been on the books for a number of years. So what we're talking about, at least initially, is the new law regarding uh, recreation marijuana and what it means in the employment context, especially uh, in public safety positions like police and fire. Yeah, and Bill, and thank you for having me. I, I will add to uh, what Craig said uh, by noting he mentioned the difference between uh, medicinal use and recreational use. Yeah. Um, frankly, the state of the law right now is is a mess, uh, and anybody with even a cursory uh, knowledge of of uh, the news knows that on January one of this year, a constitutional amendment that was passed by the uh, New Jersey citizenry um, uh, made it made it constitutional to have a a, a recreational uh, marijuana program and a medicinal marijuana program. There are a bunch of statutes that are trying to be crafted right now. Mm -hmm. Lots of, even if you just looked at the papers casually, you see a lot of tension between the governor's office and even members of his own party. Um, and the law is still very much in flux with respect to how that's going to shake out to the extent that the attorney general uh, instructed all 21 county prosecutors uh, to hold off on uh, the prosecutions of the marijuana cases, advise law enforcement officers at first to use their discretion, but then ended up uh, actually going even further and, and directing uh, a cessation of any new arrests and any continued prosecutions of existing cases. So as this gets fleshed out, we're going to have to pay attention very carefully to what the legislature does in conjunction with the governor's office. Yeah, and I think also to the uh, credit of the legislature, they recognize that um, this new law regarding recreational use of marijuana is going to impact um, employment, employers, employees, um, and they've addressed it in the law, but I think what, and as Tom pointed out, the problem is this is really a law in flux. Um, there is, you know, there's already a bill to amend the law um, with respect to some of the uh, employment aspects of the, um, of the new law. And we're going to see over time, 
there's going to be litigation about it. Um, certainly in the context of employment, I suspect that um, employers are going to be uncertain about how the law applies um, to, to their employees and employees and unions, um, certainly um, FNBA locals, um, are, are going to have to address how they think that the law applies to their membership and uh, engage with the employer on coming up with some understanding about the law itself and its application um, in employment. Right. And Bill, you asked about uh, public safety workers yeah. in particular. Mm -hmm. To me, that means police, fire, and EMS. Sure. Um, and what I would say to anybody who asked me, uh, hey, I heard marijuana is legal now. I, can, I guess I can light up a joint and right. I can have a good right. time. Or I have a car. And what I will say just generally is not so fast. Yeah. Uh, put your lighter down. Uh, it's, it's not as clear cut as you may seem. Uh, and for reasons that I'm sure we'll get into later in the broadcast. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we uh, Craig, you had brought up some things uh, during this last state meeting about your interpretation or at least uh, how the law read in terms of what it means when it comes to employment. Can you touch on some of those things that you spoke about at the last state meeting? Well, I, I certainly, um, you know, as, as Tom pointed out, uh, not so fast in terms of um, uh, having a green light to start um, lighting up. No pun intended. Um, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, you know, the law, I think, is clear on, on a couple of things, and, and that is um, you can't be high on the job. Yep. Um, you can't use, possess, or sell marijuana while you're, you're working. So I think those things are clear where it becomes uh, um, a little bit unclear. And the law does, I, I'm going to say, attempt to address it. And I think it remains to be seen um, whether it effectively uh, addresses it is the issue about impairment. Because the law you know, says that you can um, have marijuana in your system and you cannot be um, disciplined or have any adverse employment action against you just based solely on the fact that there is marijuana in your system. But then that begs the question as to, well, at what point do you go beyond just having marijuana in your system and are considered in, impaired and therefore unfit for duty, right. unable to, to do your job? And is there any consequences as a result of being impaired as a result of, of marijuana use? And that's where um, the law, I think, attempts to uh, address it. Um, for example, not only does the law permit um, testing uh, of an individual for um, evidence of, of marijuana in their system, but then the law goes the next step and says, well, the employer has to use um, an impairment expert to, to um, undertake a physical examination to determine if the employee is impaired and therefore unfit for duty. Yeah, and I would, I would add to that that as a general rule, um, firefighters need to remember that like police officers and EMTs, they are public safety workers. Yeah. That was part of your original question, public safety workers. We work for the public. Uh, and as public employees, uh, you certainly enjoy all of the rights that any other citizen does, but there are some additional curves on some of those rights. For example, a police officer, uh, to, to, to paint an extreme example, could not be a law enforcement officer by day and then go to a Klan meeting at night and openly say, I'm a member of this group. Mm -hmm. um, there are curves on speech that public employees endure. Um, <clears throat> and that extends as well to the use of substances. As we, as we stand here right now, 
uh, I would imagine there are, there are probably few municipalities, if any, that don't have some semblance of a policy regarding uh, use of legal drugs, even mm -hmm. legal drugs in the workplace, a Percocet prescription, for example, that's prescribed. Uh, many many uh, agencies require you to disclose that. Mm -hmm. The employers claim an interest in, in making sure that when their employees report to duty, mm -hmm. uh, that they are fit for duty. Fit means not under the influence. And let's be honest, there is no breathalyzer for a Percocet pill. Uh, and not to my knowledge, anything has been uh, invented yet to <clears throat> rapidly test for the presence of, of being under the influence of marijuana. As Craig pointed out, there are some tests out there to determine if it's in your bloodstream, but not whether or not it's actively uh, giving you those psychoactive effects. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so uh, the employer does have a very vested interest in ensuring that its, its public employees are ready and able to perform the job to the highest level and uh, being under the influence of marijuana or any other toxicants, they have a say in that. Uh, we certainly would not want to have uh, a surgery performed on us mm -hmm. by a doctor who we knew uh, had a medical marijuana card and was smoking a bone last night. I, I, I certainly wouldn't, and I can't imagine we would be able to find anybody that would be okay with that. Right. Mean, you get on a plane, you want to make sure that the pilot is, is not under the influence. There's a movie out there called Flight with, with Denzel Washington that actually touches upon that. He was a drug addict and he was a terrific pilot, but the two didn't mix. That's what the movie was about. Mm -hmm. um, nuclear scientists, you know, if you're working in a power plant, I'm sure that the powers that be at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission want to make sure uh, that uh, the personnel that are working there are not on the influence when they're handling very dangerous materials, handling very dangerous materials uh, that could affect the public at large. And so it's very important that uh, as we watch the law develop, that we bear in mind our unique roles as private citizens, yes, but private citizens who draw a paycheck from the, from the, the public taxpayers. And uh, that is going to mean some curves and some limitations on some of the freedoms that ordinary citizens have that we, we just frankly don't by nature of the job that we, we have. What's interesting to me about this newly passed law is right now there's nowhere for you to purchase the recreational marijuana. Am I right? I mean, as far as I know, there's only medicinal marijuana dispensaries and that's it. So you're still technically kind of breaking law. You know, prior to our conversation here, we talked about the whole stat that you thrown out there about um, something you were reading regarding uh, the average number of felonies somebody commits per week because they don't even realize that they're breaking the law, right? Yes. So you're you're now able to consume marijuana either via smoking it or eating it or however you're planning on doing that. But where do you get it from? You can't. So you're technically going to be breaking the law by trying to purchase it illegally on the black market still. Uh, that's a, that's an issue, but um, how when we talk about this um, under the influence according to the new law, um, and we talk about these uh, specialists um, that are supposed to be the ones doing this testing of under the influence, I, I think it's going to be I think it's going to be challenging to try and do that. I mean. There's nothing like a DUI check or a DUI test, a breathalyzer, that's going to immediately tell you that accurately currently without drawing blood, right? I mean, as far as I know, I'm not a, a doctor or anything like that, but um, it's going to be a challenge to, uh, to prove that somebody's under the influence. And like you said you know, earlier, uh, don't light up yet because there's a lot of, a lot of question marks here that, that could ultimately affect your employment. What's your what's your take on that in terms of the uh, the, the specialist and the under the influence according to the new law? Well, the um, the law attempts to basically 
take cannabis and put it in the same category as alcohol. You know, alcohol is a legal substance. And um, there are, with alcohol at least, you can not only measure the level of alcohol in your system, but there is scientific evidence about the level also corresponds with impairment. Transition that over to marijuana. Um, from what I read, it, it doesn't apply the same way that the level of marijuana doesn't um, um, translate into being impaired, unlike alcohol. So, you know, the that's why the um, I believe the legislature put in that part about the drug impairment expert being needed in, in order to determine uh, impairment because you cannot test for impairment by using cannabis like you can test for impairment by using um, alcohol. Um, but there already is a, a bill that was introduced about a week ago to take that uh, drug impairment expert requirement and make it discretionary so the employer doesn't have to use a drug impairment expert. But the thing about the, the bill that I read is it doesn't provide a substitute then. It doesn't say, well, if you're not going to use a drug impairment expert, then what? this is what you need to use in order to determine impairment. It doesn't provide any guidance to an employer to, uh, to use something other than the drug impairment expert uh, to make the case that not only does the employee have cannabis in their system, but also um, they have a level to the point where they are impaired and unable to do their job. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the experts we're talking about, there's a lot of different things that are being bandied about. One of the things that uh, in one of the bills that exists is what's called a workplace impairment recognition expert. And there's a certification they're talking about getting for that, as, as uh, Craig pointed out. Um, and interestingly, the bills do not detail the requirements for obtaining that certification. Instead, what they do is they, they kick it to the Cannabis Regulatory Commission and the New Jersey Police Training Commission, and they're telling them, if this bill passes, you guys figure out what the requirements are to achieve that certification. Now, interestingly, and I say this having had uh, a dozen years of a law enforcement background before I became a lawyer, um, you have drug recognition experts already that are trained and certified in a lot of law enforcement agencies. And they have been challenged recently. I was reading uh, just a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago about uh, uh, a case that uh, they were challenging the science behind it and whether or not really you can say you're an expert in this. Uh, um, and as Craig pointed out, marijuana is different. Um, a, lot of, a lot of other <clears throat> Schedule One drugs are different than alcohol in the sense that it's difficult to measure. You can't really quantify a level of intoxication. You know, we, the pharmacology is just different. I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, uh, but the average American knows that if you have more to drink, you're, you, you know, kids know this, you're gonna get more drunk the, the more you drink. Uh, and most police officers know that on average, uh, it's about 0.015% per hour is the burn rate uh, for the alcohol to be metabolized in your in your uh, in your bloodstream and through your kidneys and liver, uh, and Craig pointed out there's just no way to really measure that. Mm -hmm. So what this expert is going to look like, what the requirements are going to be, and how valid this so-called certification is going to be, really remains to be seen. Yeah, and also to add on to that, um, Tom is correct. There actually is a case pending before the New Jersey Supreme Court on this very issue about the use of a drug impairment expert, where this individual 
was uh, convicted of driving under the influence based solely on the drug and impairment experts um, examination and testimony. So um, the Supreme Court is going to be weighing in on this very issue about the validity of even using a drug impairment expert uh, to determine whether or not somebody is impaired. And, you know, I think that is right around the corner because it's been um, the case has been pending for a while and I expect the Supreme Court to be taking it up in the near future. So we might have an answer pretty quickly and, or at least get some more guidance um, based on the use of, a, of a, a drug impairment expert, the validity of using it, um, whether the science matches um, uh, what they've been trained and certified um, to review. I, I was reading there's a, like a 12 point type of process um, involved, which includes taking somebody's pulse and looking at somebody's muscle tone uh, as, right, as right. Uh, one of the criteria for um, uh, determining impairment. And um, I, you know, I guess the Supreme Court is going to certainly weigh in on how valid um, something like that is in New Jersey. It's going to be a very interesting dynamic to see how this plays out. And, and uh, to what Craig just said, you know, we need to remember, too, and be mindful of the audience, firefighters, not necessarily law enforcement officers, who have a little bit of a different experience, their, their work duties and so forth. A drug recognition expert, um, which is what Craig is talking about, uh, it differs from the workplace impairment recognition expert in, in whatever way we don't know yet, but at least in theory, it was supposed to be a difference. Mm -hmm. the, the drug recognition experts, the DREs, I mean, it, it's it's interesting to watch and, and our audience should know, it's not a machine, you don't hook the person up, there's no like breathalyzer for sure. this kind of it's thing. A judgment. It's a judgment it's, yes, you're taking in a variety of factors, he's right, I've seen it done. Um, uh, you, you blood pressure, pulse rate, uh, uh, your, uh, reaction your pulse ox, your, your oxygen and your blood sugar, all these things, reaction, they, they're doing a panoply of tests. Uh, and at the end, <clears throat> it's a hypothesis, really. It's, it's, it's supposed to be an informed hypothesis based upon my experience and training and observation. This person is likely intoxicated. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a reason that this, this case is, is up on appeal right now. And frankly, I've been mystified as to why it took so long. I mean, it's been around for a couple decades, you know, so yeah. maybe 20 years or more. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see how that case plays out. And there's no doubt that it's going to have an impact on, on the workplace impairment recognition expert certification for uh, marijuana use. When, when we talk about labor and we talk about the employer-employee relationship, what does this new law mean for employers that currently have drug testing policies, and um, does state law supersede administrative policies or contractual agreements containing uh, drug use and or testing policies? Well, one of the things in this new uh, recreation marijuana law is that it applies to all employees. There's no exceptions to it. All public and private uh, employees are covered and protected uh, from adverse um, actions um, based on, on this law. There, like I mentioned before, there's this bill that's out there that is looking to um, not only um, make the, the use of a workplace impairment uh, expert um, optional, but also um, take some types of employees out of the protections of this law. From what I read, at least in the draft, and you know, um, draft bills are subject to amendments and and modifications. Um, there are exceptions to um, employees that work in critical infrastructure facilities, 
um, which isn't the same thing as working in um, uh, in a in critical infrastructure type of uh, of um, workplaces. But so that doesn't include it doesn't appear to include uh, firefighters. But there is um, but that does appear to include like construction workers and you know sure. uh, mm -hmm. the, you know that type of employees. But it also um, takes out of the protections law enforcement. Uh, employees that um, also carry firearms. So certainly, it's it's clear that the legislature is already looking to take perhaps a, a step back and relook at the issue of um, how recreation marijuana is supposed to um, apply to the workplace. And it should be interesting to see um, where this particular bill goes, and if there's other bills um, that also may be introduced. Uh, to address this issue. Tom, you've got experience in the law enforcement industry, being a former law enforcement officer yourself, um, specialized in the K-9 unit. You feel that um, it may also be a conflict of interest for law enforcement officers who may be coming across said, you know, drugs or uh, maybe in larger quantities because they're doing searches, they're coming across, you know, marijuana and, and drug deals and that kind of stuff. Do you think that maybe that has something to do with it as well? Yeah, I, I think that law enforcement poses a particular, a particularly specific challenge. Um, it, it's firefighters and police officers, it's public safety, as we discussed at the top of the broadcast. Uh, they're public employees, but as Craig pointed out, police carry guns, mm -hmm. uh, and they are vested with the legal and moral authority to take life if necessary. Um, <clears throat> so that adds a whole other layer of complications for law enforcement, and I think you have accuracy with the firearm just being probably the foremost consideration. If you're going to employ the use of firearm in, in the line of duty, uh, one presumes that you you have the requisite moral and legal authority to use it in such a fashion. And when you're using it, you know, you want to make sure that you're shooting straight, to put it quite simply. Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> if you're under the influence, uh, you are certainly going to have uh, challenges there. And I think that for law enforcement um, personnel who are going to be coming in contact with with people who are now in possession of marijuana freely, and they say, I can do this now. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's going to be interesting. There's going to be a lot of training in 2021, I believe, once the legislature gets this straightened out. And I think, as Craig already alluded earlier, uh, there are so many bills that have been introduced and withdrawn and then uh, just recently signed by the governor. And then, uh, as Craig noted, almost immediately amended. Uh, there's There are amendments out there. I think they're going to be amendments upon amendments. And like all of the case law that was developed uh, when the state of New Jersey decided that they wanted to eradicate the scourge of drunk driving in New Jersey, and that's actually what they uh, what they said in the bill, um, <clears throat> this, the late 70s and the 80s and the early 90s were, were big years. It was, a, it was about a 12-year period where a lot of law was made with respect to how to test, how to determine impairment, what constitutes operation of a vehicle, and they're just putting in the drunk driving contest. And remember, as we said, there's no magic box that is going to tell you whether someone's under the influence of medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. <clears throat> and even if there was, remember all of the litigation that happened with the breathalyzer. And then the state of New Jersey switched over to the aqua test machine, and that's been abandoned now. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court. There were committees and studies, and uh, the, the, the briefs were unbelievable. 
lot of uh, flux, a lot of turmoil in the law. This was argued for years, and that's what I think we're going to see on the horizon with the use of marijuana, either medically or recreationally. Yeah, I, I'm not trying to digress from the audience. The majority of our audience is, you know, firefighters, uh, police dispatchers, EMTs, and whatnot. I'm just curious, given your, you know, existing or given your previous uh, experience, what your thoughts were on that. And you bring up a, an interesting point, um, and that is that a armed law enforcement officer is tasked with sometimes the duty of um, protecting himself or taking a life, depending on what the situation is, right? So how do we determine what's more important? And that's, you know, firefighters and EMTs are put in situations where they have to save a life. I was just about to say. They're responsible for, you know, saving right. lives. Police can take a life right. and, and they mm -hmm. save lives too. But yeah. firefighters and EMT personnel, they're called upon to save lives. Right. And as I brought up the example of the surgeon, who among us would like to get operated on by the guy who was smoking a bone the night before? I wouldn't. Right. Unless it studies his hands. <laughs> <laughs> and so it presents a unique set of challenges. Um, is very much in flux. There are conflicts in the law all over the place. Um, and I think you're right. I think that firefighters are going to face just as much scrutiny as law enforcement officers are. And I don't think by the time this is all whittled down, you're going to see a whole lot of difference between mm -hmm. the two. I think if you have a municipality that has a paid fire department and has a paid police department, uh, you're going to see the policies be parody. identical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of parity. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think um, if, uh, to what Tom said, I mean, there already is, for example, the attorney general's guidelines that apply to law enforcement, right. uh, they don't have similar um, type of guidelines that apply across the board to firefighters throughout the state, like they, uh, the attorney general's guidelines apply to all law enforcement throughout the state. So there already is a distinction, and um, I guess we'll really uh, see over time um, how that all plays out. Uh, the I, I don't know if the AG has weighed in uh, at all about how they're going to handle this um, uh, this law, I know that they weighed in regarding medicinal marijuana. They didn't find that to be an exception to mm -hmm. the AG guidelines. Um, so I don't know whether now that there is a law regarding recreational use, whether that now impacts um, how the attorney general um, looks at their own uh, guidelines for law enforcement personnel. Yeah, and I think one important point we ought to bear in mind is that marijuana is a Schedule One drug according to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. On the federal level, it is illegal, mm -hmm. period, end of story. Notwithstanding what, what some 30-plus states now have, have adopted, mm -hmm. uh, I think there were four or five more states got added just this last election cycle to where the legalization was on the, on the ballot. Uh, it is still a federal offense to possess any amount of marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, and so <clears throat> that includes things like, remember this, guys, airports, mm -hmm. Don't think because you're leaving New Jersey, you're flying to Denver, Colorado, it's legal in both states, I'm in good shape. Uh, the minute you set foot on an airport that is controlled by the Federal Aviation Administration, that's federal property. Mm -hmm. It may be venued in a particular municipality, and you may have municipalities who provide law enforcement for that. Newark Liberty Airport, for example, uh, the northern part of the state, Philadelphia International, Atlantic City International, down uh, the southern part of the state, uh, down the turnpike. Uh, but it is governed under under federal and local law. <clears throat> and so we got to remember that. And, you know, we talked about law enforcement, but this is devoted primarily to firefighter and EMS personnel. Um, you have a firearms implication there. It is maybe legal uh, in your state to possess, consume, uh, cultivate even perhaps, and we'll see how the law shakes out on that. 
uh, marijuana, but you cannot do that and own a firearm or purchase a firearm. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting. You could be the town drunk and you could legally possess a firearm. You can <clears throat> have been confined in a mental institution for a brief period of time in your history and be declared that you're now competent, you can get a gun. Uh, but you cannot possess a gun if you have ever, if you use or, or um, uh, possess any type of marijuana and you make yourself a federal felon if you walk into a gun shop and uh, you sign ATF form 4473, and at the bottom, and I'm reading from it, it asks, are you an unlawful user of or addicted to marijuana or any depressant, depressant, stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance? And then it has a specific warning. The use or possession of marijuana remains unlawful under federal law, regardless of whether it has been legalized or decriminalized for medicinal or recreational purposes in the state where you reside. So <clears throat> for those uh, firefighters that may be considering, EMTs that may be considering I'm going to get a medical marijuana card, and this is going to cover me. Even if the legislature here in New Jersey works this out and somehow makes it okay for you to do that, you're going to have a problem on the federal level. And if you own a gun before you get the card, you're supposed to turn it in. Uh, and if you don't, you're, you're in violation of some serious uh, felonious federal statutes. Uh, so it's as this gets unwound in the next uh, several months and maybe the next year or so, um, there are balancing of interests that I think are going to be critical for every firefighter and EMT to consider. Yeah, and I think Tom's right. Uh, it remains to be seen how the interplay between this law and other laws um, plays out. Um, you know, this is unknown territory, and I think in Tom's example it is a good one where there is a direct correlation between you know, this law, which, you know, protects the use of uh, recreational marijuana and federal laws that don't see it the same way. Yeah, they don't. That, that's something I wanted to touch on real quick as we brought it up. Um, federal versus local versus state. And, and you know, we're the majority, I would say all of our listeners um, and members of the FMBA are uh, municipality workers, you know, state local workers. Uh, we don't really have any federal uh, employees that are under our association. So how does that um, how does that affect us in terms of the federal regulations versus this new state legislation that's been passed? Well, I don't think it's going to have any. I don't think it's going to make any difference uh, whether you're a municipal firefighter or let's say perhaps uh, you're a firefighter at uh, uh, you know Atlantic City Airport which is federal property because they've got the yeah. fighter base there and so forth. We mentioned prescribed versus recreational. Does HIPAA play a part in the prescribed marijuana? So if, you, if you've got the marijuana, medical marijuana card, um, is that fall under one of those drugs that has to be, uh, you have to notify your employer that you're currently uh, taking, like, like a Percocet or, I mean, most of these other drugs that are prescribed are, are of the, opiate family, right? So Percocet, Oxycodone, all those different things. Um, does does marijuana fall under one of those drugs that has to be notified? You have to notify your employer? Do we uh, know? I think the, the way that I would answer that is it's really now you're looking at some other laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act, which um, uh, addresses issues like medical examinations or medical inquiries, mm -hmm. like whether or not you have a prescription for medical marijuana would be a medical inquiry, uh, like any other type of prescription. And I think that you know, I'll kind of give you the non-legal version of it. Basically, 
that um, it, it says that if, if there is some, um, if your doctor believes that the prescription that you are taking impacts your ability to do the job, mm -hmm. um, then that medical inquiry is permissible. So the employer can ask, are you on um, some type of medication that impacts your ability to be fit for duty, right? Yeah. Um, so that that's really the question is uh, the same thing with medical marijuana or a prescription, right? Um, is that prescription that you are taking, does that impact your um, fitness for duty? And if so, the employer can ask, like any other prescription, are you are you taking it? Um, uh, what what's the dosage? You, you know, how often are you taking it, and so forth. Uh, I, but I think, at least for medicinal marijuana, is at least my experience has been that the doctors um, that are prescribing it are very careful in guiding employees about its use, so that there there is the line isn't crossed between using medical marijuana and fitness for duty. So for example, if you are you know, scheduled for uh, to report to work on Monday morning at 8 a.m., the doctor would say, do not use your prescription within X amount prior, of hours yeah. mm -hmm. you know, prior to your scheduled um, tour of duty. Right. So therefore there is no crossover mm -hmm. between you know, using your prescription and uh, question about your fitness uh, for duty. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's, you know, that's kind of how it's addressed. It's more like, at least on the medicinal marijuana issue, more like any other type of medical inquiry that's covered under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. Where does CBD play into all this? So obviously CBD is a different type of chemical produced from the uh, marijuana plant or the hemp plant and has additional benefits um, from a medicinal standpoint, where does it fall into this new law? Has there been any mention of CBD products or is it because is it specifically uh, marijuana? Uh, well, the law uh, is just addresses cannabis and mm -hmm. the only thing that I can speak of regarding CBD is only what I've read and, and I've read really in the context of the question of if I'm using CBD, will I come up positive right. on, on a drug test? And what I've read is that Pure CBD, and again, I'm just read, reading it, so I don't know. I'm not an expert in right. it. Don't, go, don't no, go drinking the oil. No <laughs> personal knowledge of it. That pure CBD, you should not come up positive. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of um, products on the market that are not considered pure and may have other Traces. other chemicals that could end up resulting in, in a positive um, for for marijuana. But it is interesting. Um, I don't know how that's going to play out, especially if the you know, a strict literal interpretation of the law is that cannabis use is protected. Is CBD that may be tainted in some way, is that covered under the cannabis recreational use law? Yeah, and I think that you could go down to your local um, cigarette shop, cigar shop, you'll see CBD oil in a giant 7-Eleven. There's huge signs, you know, four by four signs in the window. The profit margin must be very high. I <laughs> really pushing that instead of Twinkies. But, you, <laughs> but the, the, the CBD, as I understand, and of course, I'm not a laboratory scientist, as, as, as Craig himself noted about right. himself, uh, but um, it's supposed to have removed the, the psychoactive properties right. that are contained in the hemp. Um, it's extracted somehow through whatever process I, I do not know. Um, I would think though that the source where you get the CBD, which mm -hmm. is legal, 
Yeah. Uh, the source of your CBD is going to be just as important as your concern about whether or not you're going to get high from it. Why? Or, or whether it would show up on a drug test. Um, and that's because you need to know how, how was it adulterated? Was it messed with? What, what was the extraction process like? Yeah. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Odul's, the, the non-alcoholic beer. They do something to it uh, to remove the alcoholic properties. Right. It pretty much still tastes like beer, uh, but you don't get the buzz from it. Mm -hmm. uh, decaffeinated coffee, there's a process for that. So then there are good processes, and I'm sure there are not so good processes. Uh, about a year ago, there was a lot of controversy about vaping. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking just nicotine. Uh, and a lot of people were getting very sick, having severe lung problems, yeah. and they, the FDA was trying to figure out what was going on, and they traced it to uh, vitamin E acetate, which was a cutting agent used to, to, to uh, 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 infuse the nicotine with. Uh, and as I understand it, all those illnesses were caused by black market products. Uh, where were they coming from? Were they coming from China? Were they coming from Mexico? Sure. Yeah. Where maybe the uh, the regulations aren't so great and mm -hmm. it's just people interested in making a profit. So I think that you got to be very careful about where you buy it from. My suggestion to, to anybody who wants to use the CBD is uh, do your homework, do some research, purchase it from a reputable retailer uh, who purchased it himself from a reputable wholesaler who in turn gets it from a reputable manufacturer. As a, you know, if I saw Johnson and Johnson on the bottom, I don't know if they make it. I feel a lot more confident than where it said, you know, Bill's edible products from Skokie, Illinois. And I have no idea what this you know, PO box number is. And it's, it could be some, you know, 20 something cooking this up in his garage. But I mean, the bottom line, at least, um, is you still have to use it at, you know, at your own risk. You have to be right. very cautious right. about it. And, um, you know, I'm not really sure yet how that uh, the use of CBD plays out with respect to this new yeah. law. Yeah. Um, bringing it kind of back to the labor aspect of this, um, you know, we talked about earlier uh, the drug testing policies that may be in existence. Um, is this something that a local should look to negotiating in terms of language in their contract? Uh, regarding this new law, or should that be something that we should kind of stay away from and just kind of see where this whole new law pans out, how it plays out, how public safety is either uh, amended out of or into? What What are your recommendations on the, the labor aspect of this? Well, I think, uh, as Tom pointed out, under the law, this workplace impairment recognition expert needs to be certified, and there has to be regulations. The um, the Cannabis Regulatory Commission has to issue some regulations and guidance about this particular thing. Because of the way the law is written now, it's both a, um, you know, a positive for cannabis coupled with um, you know, the impairment recognition experts determination um, hypothesis as to uh, impairment. Mm -hmm. um, and so until those regulations come out, we're really at the early stages. So it's a good question about whether to try and address it now in your existing drug policy or uh, give it some time to at least get these regulations uh, in place. Um, I think, you know, I'm a, a big advocate for having a policy to begin with. And um, that means that you are interacting with your employer um, about the policy and, and its application. And I don't see why you would uh, wait at least to have a discussion with your employer about what are we going to do now because the law is, you know, is in effect. And um, are we going to change our policy 
as this law develops and as the, the regulations come out from this regulatory uh, commission, because I, I think it has to be addressed in the policy. The question really is about timing, um, given the infancy of the law and the possibility of changes in the law that we talked about, as well as these regulations that we're waiting on to see what they say um, and how that impacts um, drug policies and um, the law, how it's used. Yeah, and I think as a matter of just basic a basic legal principle, um, I know Craig and I agree that um, if it comes to the differences between a law and whatever is in your collective bargaining agreement, the law is certainly going to supersede. You cannot create a contractual provision that clearly uh, conflicts with, with state law. Um, so as far as a policy goes, and policies are typically not negotiated. They are just handed, yeah, mm -hmm. handed down by the employer and they say, this is what you're going to do. Under the current versions of the bills that are out there, employers may still maintain a drug-free workplace. They're still allowed to do that. Um, employers are not required uh, to, and I, and I could quote from one of the bills, permit or accommodate the use, consumption, being under the influence, possession, transfer, display, transportation, sale, or growth of cannabis or cannabis, cannabis items in the workplace. Uh, and the bills specifically state uh, that employers do not need to accommodate marijuana use during work hours or at the work site. Um, they permit an employer to require an employee to undergo a drug test for marijuana, and they also authorize uh, disciplinary action in some sorts. Now, interestingly, there was a case um, at a funeral home uh, <clears throat> not too long ago, and uh, it, it noted that even though the cannabis law, the first one that was adopted in 2009, uh, was designed to um, make sure that nothing in the law would be construed to require an employer to accommodate the medical use of marijuana in the workplace, the appellate division disagreed and said, no, it violates the law against discrimination. Now, Craig mentioned the interplay between the Americans with Disabilities Act on the federal level. That's a very important law. Mm -hmm. And here in New Jersey, we have, you know, it's basically a civil rights act. Uh, it's a law against discrimination. Mm -hmm. uh, and they found that, um, that, that that did not let the employer off the hook, that it just because you have one section of a law that authorizes something doesn't mean that it negates the other law. And uh, the Supreme Court upheld it and said that uh, the Compassionate Marijuana Use Act's refusal to require an employment accommodation for a medical marijuana user does not mean that the act has immunized employers from obligations already imposed elsewhere. Uh, the Compassionate Use Act does not minimize what the LAD, the Law Against Discrimination, prohibits. That's, that's what the Supreme Court and the Appellate Division have held. So, um, I, we've said a lot that this is just very much in flux. There's yeah. going to be a lot of case mm -hmm. law. Uh, lawyers like Craig and I are throughout the state are going to be very busy in the next right. uh, five years or yeah. so, I suspect, as this gets all fleshed out. This is brand new stuff here. And remember, again, on the federal level, it's illegal. So then you're going to see uh, some interplay already between the federal level and the state level and what happens there. For me, I, I think that you should always try to have a uniform drug testing policy. Law enforcement officers are governed by the attorney general guidelines on that. That is static. Um, most good policies that I've seen tend to mirror that. It's pretty pretty good policy in, in its own right mm -hmm. for the police officers. Um, but just be cautioned that you're not going to be able to get, even if you manage to get your employer to say yes to a contract provision that gives you greater ability to smoke weed, uh, at the first challenge, it's going to fall yeah. like a house of cards. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, policies uh, primarily to the extent that they are negotiated really uh, address issues like, you know, procedural aspects of it about, um, 
testing, whether it's random testing, if it is random testing, what is the process to determine who was selected right. um, for the random tests? And also, what are the consequences for a positive test yep. result? Even where you have a, um, a zero tolerance policy, um, you can still have a negotiated um, schedule for discipline for a positive uh, test result. The Attorney General's guidelines, there's no negotiations there. The the AG guidelines are strict compliance. There is no flexibility. Automatic termination. Right. right. Yeah. But, uh, but um, those that are not subject to the Attorney General's guidelines can negotiate things like anything else, any other rule infraction what is the consequence for the, the rule infraction? The, you know, the employer has a policy, you shall not do this. Well, if you do this, what is the consequence for, for doing that? And that's where you, you negotiate um, you know, something in a policy. Another thing for procedural, and I think it applies to this um, particular law, is we've been talking a lot about this um, workplace impairment recognition expert. The law doesn't really go into it, and the regulations may address some of this. Um, well, what do they do? What are they called? What 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 is their process? Is it the same as the um, the drug recognition expert right. on the law enforcement um, side? Do they issue reports? Um, you know, and for example, does the union negotiate over well? You know, if someone is um, if an expert is brought in and they um, find that there is an impairment. What, um, you know, do they put it in a written report? Does the union get a copy of it? Does the employee get a, get a copy of it? Those type of procedural things, mm -hmm. um, you know, may be in a policy um, if they're not preempted by the regulations, which are yet to, to be issued. Uh, real quick, I wanted to expand on that a little bit. So um, we're talking about policy versus collective bargaining agreements. Um, what about in a situation, because I've seen this, but what about in a situation where um, you're an employee of the town, right, but you're also a member of a bargaining unit that collectively bargains for your rights? It happens in the case where a township, a general township employee, say handbook, has a set policy, yet your CBA uh, has a separate policy that you've negotiated. Where where does that kind of fall? Who what kind of supersedes what and, and what should be followed in that case? Well, the way I look at an employee handbook is it, it's really a gap filler where your collective negotiations agreement doesn't address a particular issue. Mm -hmm. The you, you can look to the employee handbook to fill in the gap. Um, you know, only thing where there's things that are managerial prerogatives that are not subject to negotiations then the employee handbook would control that because it's a management prerogative. If it's negotiable, either you put it in your contract or if it's in, not in your contract, but in the employee handbook and the union has chosen not to negotiate over that issue, that means that they've either waived it mm -hmm. or accepted or the, the employer's um, policy, then that would control until the union um, and the employer negotiate something, something different. Gotcha. Yeah, and the joint insurance fund, uh, you see this in a lot of counties where it's a pooling of resources. You have maybe a tri-county GIF uh, that, that pools all the resources to try to get a cheaper rate on the insurance. They're all thrown in together, and that's really what insurance is. It's a bunch of people banding together, paying a little bit of money to cover the one guy who needs it, mm -hmm. um, whether it's cars, homes, or whatever. Um, I think that once in a while I will see, and I can always tell when GIF has decided to modify its, uh, its handbook policy, I will so suddenly get an influx of calls about 
a new handbook policy that came out, and they're concerned that it might uh, run afoul of the collective bargaining agreement. Could I take a look at it? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, when I, that happens, I said, oh, Jif must be at it again. It's doing its thing. Uh, and <clears throat> what I look for is, of course, any, any contradiction between collective bargaining agreement and a policy. The collective bargaining agreement, as Craig's pointed out, if it's mandatorily negotiable, it's the collective bargaining agreement provision is going to prevail. Um, uh, but what always comes up that's interesting in those GIF cases is, what if you have a provision that says right in the handbook uh, that if there's any conflict between the collective bargaining agreement and this handbook, uh, the collective bargaining agreement will control, it doesn't mention anything about past practices, and there are they are abound. I, I name an agency, name a fire department that doesn't have um, lots of past practices. Good example I usually ask with with uh, with some guys is what day is payday, and very few contracts actually say what day you get your check, but everybody knows what day that is, and it might it's probably been that day for you know to entire career. Uh, until an employee decide, employer decides they're gonna change it yeah. uh, for whatever reason, that's negotiable. Well, how does this work in the context of marijuana? If they come up with a policy, let's say that uh, you know runs afoul of a collective bargaining agreement, let's assume that somehow it's mandatory negotiable, the collective bargaining agreement's gonna prevail. Um, if you have some type of past practice that has been in effect, you can't possibly write all of them down. You'd have a 500-page contract, and nobody could still think of all of them. So I think that's going to be a factor uh, and be on the lookout when you see a handbook come out. You know, look for stuff related to marijuana if, if they have a policy, and I'm sure municipalities are going to come up with them um, now that you see legalization has, has, is upon us on the horizon. And they're going to try and, and, and maybe put in a broad-based thing that may run afoul of some of the other rights that you may have not necessarily to in, inhale or to partake in marijuana use, uh, but <clears throat> there may be some other collateral factors such as you know drug testing and so forth that you need to be on the lookout for. I think the past practice thing becomes interesting, right? Because we all know police and fire, uh, if somebody has a problem with something, we usually get them the help they need, right? Either uh, alcohol abuse or mental health or drug abuse or something like that. So I think that plays an interesting part in this law and from the contractual labor standpoint, what we've done in the past. You know, if somebody has had an issue with alcohol abuse, uh, they may not have lost their job. We've just, you know, sent them to a facility for a month to get clean and come back and be fit for duty test and they're fit for duty, come back to work. So it's interesting, you know, bringing that up and looking at past practice versus the employee handbook versus our CBA. How does that play into this? I mean, would the past practice supersede the CBA or would the CBA supersede the past practice? Well, I, I would say, and I, and I think, you know, um, arbitrators have found this is a past practice is just as binding as an express provision in the collective negotiations agreement. The, the problem with a past practice is really just proving the existence of the practice. What does it look like? How does it uh, work? Um, has it always been consistently applied um, you know, in, the, in a similar situation? And so, as a general matter of labor law, if I may add, a past practice can never conflict with, an, with a written provision in a contract. And if there is a conflict, 
there's not an arbitrator in the country, I believe, who would find that a past practice would trump the express language in the agreement. Mm -hmm. uh, contracts always control, and that works on both sides. And right. you, you could have been getting paid on Thursdays for 25 years, and if your contract says you're supposed to get it on a Friday, all it takes is either the employer or the employee to say, hey, we're going to go to Fridays, and you can't say, well, we've been doing it for 20 years. It's a past practice. It never supersedes a, an express provision in a collective bargaining agreement. Right, so past practice um, really applies when the contract language language is ambiguous, right, you know, right. or non-existent, or non-existent. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as far as the law goes, in my opinion, laws are always going to supersede contractual provisions that conflict with the law. Look at Chapter Seventy-Eight, for example. Sure. Yeah. You could you could negotiate all you wanted mm -hmm. and have a provision in there, it's taken and away. it's taken away by the statute. And a collective bargaining agreement, an express provision, if it's in there, is always going to uh, control over a this nebulous past practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask if you expect any of this to change in the near future, but we've already seen change. So <laughs> we've already seen amendments. We've already seen legislation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right to change any of this. So yes. I'll kind of shy away from that. Is there anything else that either one of you wanted to add on to what we've already discussed um, any further? Uh, the only thing I would add is, is what, you know, I think all the um, locals do now is, you know, um, make sure that they're up on the law, changes to the law, what might be on the horizon. The, the state FNBA does a great job of keeping it, its members informed about um uh, legislation that's been proposed, mm -hmm. legislation that's been passed, and also um, how that law has been interpreted interpreted through either cases or uh, arbitration awards or or whatever. But the the whole thing is to just stay on, on top of it mm -hmm. and um, be aware. And uh, you know, I think Tom would agree with this. Call your lawyer if you um, yes, you know, have a question about it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation has a whole set of restrictions uh, for what they call uh, safety-sensitive transportation employees, and they include like pilots, school bus drivers, truck drivers, train engineers, transit vehicle operators, aircraft personnel, um, security personnel, ship captains, etc. So I would just close with kind of where we started, which is remember, you're a public sector employee. You are not working for yourself. You're not self-employed. Therefore, you you yes, you have all the constitutional rights, but there are some curbs and limitations on those rights. And as I think we're going to certainly see it play out in the coming months and in the coming couple of years, mm -hmm. at least, uh, you're going to see this tension between federal law and state law. Uh, you're going to see tension between state law and collective bargaining rights, and you're going to see a tension between uh, the Constitution the federal constitution, the Bill of Rights, and, and I would just caution firefighters, uh, EMS personnel uh, to be very careful. Do not think that, you know, pardon the fun, greener pastures are here because you're not going to be able to just do whatever you want. I think you're going to see just as many restrictions um, on the medical use of marijuana uh, as well as recreational. And since the Mayo Clinic has determined that you could have marijuana in your system anywhere from three days to 30 days, depending on how heavily you use it. You're also going to see uh, a nexus between well, testing and, and what is considered to be like above the so-called legal limit. We don't think about alcohol. It's 0.10, then they lower it to 0.08. Yeah. Uh, and when they come up with some way to measure it, if they do, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the what the line is and where they draw it. Uh, so be forewarned. Um, a lot of collateral consequences. Do not go out and think that just because it's legal, 
uh, you're free from uh, employment discipline or from even prosecution in certain circumstances. Yeah. And I've even seen, I've even seen or read in some, uh, some cases, the testing and the, the length of time that it stays in your system can be upwards of six months, depending on how they're testing, whether it's a hair follicle or if it's blood or saliva right. or whatever the case may be. So it could, you know, you might've been at a party with, uh, you know, a bunch of friends and somebody made a brownie and you didn't know about it, ate it, right. whatever, got, you know, you still consumed it. Six months later, you might still test positive for right. a you know pole fall. Right, right. That's you know? exactly right. So get your hair cut off. And, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. Um, well, thank you both, uh, gentlemen, for joining me today talking about this. Um, I really think it's something that we're going to be talking about for so, quite some time. Like you said, our uh, legal experts are going to be staying busy. Um, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to talk about it. It was a pleasure being here. I really appreciate the invitation. Of course, if any of our listeners have any questions, uh, Craig and I can be contacted. I would assume it's right through your the state office. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'd be happy to help. Great. Yes. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Hey, guys. Bill Brower here with FMBA Nation. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about ServPro of Central Union County in Western Essex County. These guys are a trusted leader in the restoration industry. They provide 24-hour residential commercial services with highly trained restoration technicians. They're a locally owned and operated business, and they're dedicated to being faster to any size disaster with the training, equipment, and expertise to handle your restoration and cleaning needs. Some of the things that they cover are water damage restoration, fire damage restoration, mold remediation, storm damage restoration, cleaning services, and building services, to name a few. These guys understand the stress and worry that comes with a fire or water damage and the disruption it causes to your life and home or business, and their goal is to help minimize the interruption to your life and quickly make it like it never even happened. Our friends over there, Carl Spinner and Bob Morrison. Carl has over 25 years of experience in the industry. Bob Morrison has over 35 years of service industry sales experience. So don't hesitate to give them a call. You can reach them at 908-233-7070. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to another great episode of FMBA Nation. And stay tuned for some more great content to come. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also listen on the NJFMBA YouTube channel, as well as Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and the Google Play Store. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the FMBA Nation podcast, please email us at nation at njfmba.org.